0: testing all right good morning. Welcome to Spring Meadows um, Adult Sunday School. Um, as you can see on the board, my name is Richard Salinas and I'm uh, one of the honored more recently installed ruling elders here and um, I want to start by opening us up in prayer. Lord, I want to ask you, God, to uh, use this time, Lord, to minister to your people. I ask you, God, to use me to to teach, God, to minister to your people, Lord, and I just ask you, God, to to bless this time we have together. In your son's name we pray, amen. I want to start by reading a couple portions of scripture with you with regard to the subject at hand. First Timothy three, one through seven. The saying is trustworthy. If anyone aspires to the office of overseer, he desires a noble task. Therefore, an overseer must be above reproach, the husband of one wife, sober-minded, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not a drunkard, not violent, but gentle, not quarrelsome, so that he may not fall into disgrace, into a snare of the devil. One other passage I want to uh, read with you, Titus 1, 5 through 10. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery and insubordination, for an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firm the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction and in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. So some of you might be asking why and <laughs> upon what experience would somebody of my stature and my recent ordination be talking about this office? Well, I've had this date assigned to me for quite some time and, and even prior to um, my ordination, um, you know, I was a candidate, I was nominated and um, I thought it would be appropriate that um, somebody who's gonna take on a new role, Um, prepare for it. So this is uh, self-serving, and yet I hope beneficial to you to teach on the subject that uh, I do hope that um, um, you find interesting and and, uh, helpful. Um, I will preface that a lot of what I will say is um, theoretical and aspirational. That is, I don't have the experience of of a ruling elder, because I have one whole session meeting under my belt. So, um, however, um, I do hope that this is of some service to you so that you know my heart as your newly installed elder. Um, Among the guys that I will certainly have the pleasure of serving alongside, um, I know that the men that I do know that this is their intent and this is their heart. you know, I, I, I think back upon the time prior to, to being in a Presbyterian church. You know, um, if you don't grow up in this context, if you're not up here preaching on Sunday and administering the sacraments, there isn't actually a whole lot else you can do. You know, there was a time in my life where I, I had intentions on going to seminary. Um, you know, I... I, I I went to um Liberty University. I wanted to get a, a degree in in theology um and um ended up getting a degree in philosophy. It was my intent to go into the ministry and um and yet it just didn't pan out, you know. I got married. I have a wife and children that I love and it's a uh, however, in this context there is room for men of the church to serve the Lord in a, in a meaningful way and um, I want to get into that now so our book of church order tells us the ordinary and perpetual classes of office in the church are elders and deacons within the class of elder are two orders teaching elders and ruling elders the elders jointly have the governance and spiritual oversight of the church including teaching. Only those elders who are specially gifted, called and trained by God to preach may serve as teaching elders. 8.1 in our BCO says, this office is one of dignity and usefulness. The man who fills it has in scripture a different title's expressive of various duties. As he has the oversight of the flock of Christ, he is termed bishop or pastor. As it is his duty to be spiritually fruitful, dignified, and prudent, an example to the flock, and to govern well in the house and kingdom of Christ. He is termed presbyter or elder. As he expounds the word by sound doctrine, both exhorts and convinces the gainsayer, he is termed teacher. These titles do not indicate grades of office, but also describe one's title and the same office. And that's what we call parity. That is, you have one office, two functions. Um, he that fills this office should possess a competency of human learning and be blameless in life, sound in faith, and apt to teach. He should exhibit a sobriety and holiness of life becoming the gospel. He should rule his own household well and should have a good report of them that are outside the church. So um, we're going to look at two, section two of your outline. And I want to point out that what we read in the scripture regarding regard to the office of elder, a lot of it is presupposed. It's not being argued for. It is um, a normative practice. Um, if you don't grow up in this context, that might seem foreign to you because all you ever have is an example of the preacher, you know, there's an accession, there's no elders, you know, you got pseudo elders that might be deacons in certain contexts, depending on your experience. But I think at some future time, I would like to explore this subject um, a little further, but I want to read to you from Acts chapter 14, um, starting in verse 19. But the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having persuaded the crowds, they They stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing that he was dead. But when the disciples gathered about him, he rose up and entered the city, and on the next day went on with Barnabas to Derbe. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples, they returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch strengthening the souls of, of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. And when they had appointed elders for them in every church with prayer and fasting, they committed them to the Lord in whom they had believed. So what I want to highlight there in that passage is that look, when the preaching of the word is a administered when when the saints gathered together it was the normative practice just to appoint elders a lot of the passages that I provide for you in that in that outline again really just presuppose that that is the normative practice in the context of the church you got people that gather together and you have a minister and you have elders that is what a church is And that's what they do. And I think in a uh, future lesson, I'd I'd like to examine that the adoption of the synagogue system uh, which came down from the Old Testament because it is a very interesting subject. (coughs) The ruling elder's office was deeply rooted in biblical principles. The office was divinely instituted and had its origins in the apostolic practice of appointing elders in every church as regarded as recorded in Acts 14 and Titus 1, 5. This biblical foundation shaped the character and significance of the ruling elder's role within the Presbyterian church. Excuse me one second. Miller, who is going to be Samuel Miller was a Princeton uh, theologian Um, One of the founding members of the faculty And he wrote a book titled The Ruling Elder So a lot of what we're going to be examining here Is heavily um, derived from his book Um, And and, and the subject matter that I was primarily concerned with uh, That I found helpful was the absolute necessity Of the ruling elder in the church And the nature and duties of the ruling elder Miller says of this body christ alone as intimated before is the head he alone has a right to give laws to his church or to institute rites and ordinances for her observance his will is the supreme guide for his professing people his word their code of laws and his glory their ultimate end the authority of church officers is not original but subordinate and delegated that is, as they are his servants and act under his commission and in his name, they have power only to declare what the scriptures reveal as his will and to pronounce sentences, sentence according. If they attempt to establish any terms of communion other than those which his word warrants or to undertake to exercise authority in manner which he has not authorized, they incur guilt and have no right to exact authority obedience furthermore he says in this sacred community government is absolutely necessary even in perfect holy harmonious society of heaven there is government that is there is law and authority under which the whole celestial family is united in perfect love and unmingled enjoyment much more important and indispensable is government among fallen depraved men among whom it is impossible that the offenses will come and to whom the discipline of the scriptural and pure ecclesiastical rule is one of the most precious means of grace. To think of maintaining any society, ecclesiastical or civil, without government in this depraved world would be to contradict every principle of reason and experience as well as of scripture. And to think of supporting government without officers to whom its functions may be entrusted would be to embrace the absurd hope of obtaining an end without the requisite means. So what we gather from these passages is that in order to have order to, to, to um, implement the, um, the, the spiritual benefits, there has to be a government. And I think we can all use our imagination and think of a context where things aren't ideal. And um, um, there's too many to number, but I mean, you could think of some South American countries. You can think of, well, you could just think of maybe the last church you were at. I mean, if you don't have people with... The charge to care for your soul, to oversee the, o- the the running of the church, if you have a man all by himself doing the best he can, there isn't a way possible for him to suitably and 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 adequately minister to his people. So, moving on to um, collaboration with a teaching elder. <coughs> The ruling elders' role in office is collaborative in nature. Between ruling and teaching elders, envisioning a harmonious relationship where both teaching and ruling elders work together for the benefit of the congregation, this collaboration is not based on a hierarchy, but on a shared commitment to shepherding the flock. Ruling elders, in Miller's view, were not mere assistants to teaching elders, Rather, they were fellow elders with distinct yet complementary responsibilities. While teaching elders are primarily responsible for preaching and teaching, the ruling elders contribute to the broader pastoral care and governance of the church. This partnership provides a balanced and representative leadership structure. The absolute necessity of the ruling elder lies in the establishment of a balanced ecclesiastical polity. That is our, how we govern this church. The church governance structure is one of which ruling elders work alongside teaching elders to form a comprehensive leadership team. Miller says, now the question is by whom shall all these multiplied weighty and indispensable services be performed? Besides the arduous work of public instruction and exhortation, Who will attend to all the numberless and ever-reoccurring details of inspection, warning, and visitation, which are so so needful in every Christian community? Will any say that it is the duty of the pastor of each church to perform them all? The very suggestion is absurd. It is physically impossible for him to do it. He cannot be everywhere and know everything. He cannot perform what is expected from him and at the same time to watch over his whole flock to fulfill every duty which the interests of the church demands. He must give himself to reading. He must prepare for the service of the pulpit. He must discharge his various public labors. He must employ much time in private in instructing and counseling those who apply to him for instruction and advice. He must act his part in concerns with the whole church with which he is connected. Now it is practical practical for any man, however diligent and active, to do all this and at the same time to perform the whole work of inspection and government over a congregation of the ordinary size. We might as well expect and demand any impossibility. And the great and merciful head of the church requires impossibilities of no man. And now... One of the things that I think are critical with regard to the, the ideal of a elder ran church is we all are familiar with the potential dangers in which you have a single man bishop, one man overseeing all things in the church. There is there's a danger. And Miller warns us, he says, but even if it were reasonable or possible that a pastor should alone perform all these duties, should he be willing to undertake them? Or should the church be willing to commit them to him alone? We know that ministers are subject to the same frailties and imperfections as other men. We know. Two that a love of preeminence and power is not only natural to them and common with others, but very early after the days of the apostles, this principle began to manifest itself in the reigning sin of ecclesiastics. It produced first prelacy and afterwards popery, which we are so long and so ignobly enslaved the Church of Christ. This is not plainly show the folly and danger of yielding a despot over a whole church. Is it proper to entrust a single individual the weighty and complicated work of inspecting, trying, judging, admitting, condemning, excluding, and restoring without control? Should the members of a church consent that all their rights and privileges in reference to Christian communion be subject to the will of a single man as he is partiality, kindness, and favoritism on the one hand, or his caprice, prejudice, or passion on the other, might dictate such a mode of conducting the government of the church to say nothing of its unscriptural character is in the highest degree unreasonable and dangerous. The essential character of the office of whom we speak is that of ecclesiastical ruler. He that rules, let him do it with diligence, is the summary of his appropriate functions as laid down in Scripture. The teaching elder is indeed also a ruler. In addition to this, however, he is called to preach the gospel, administer the sacraments. But the particular department assigned to the ruling elder is to cooperate with the pastor in spiritual inspection and government. The Scriptures, as we have seen, speak not only of pastors and teachers, but also of governments, of elders who rule well, not in labor and word and doctrine. So, what does a session do? Participation in the session. With regard to the first, the public and formal duties of their office, they form a bench or a judicial court. That is, when we gather together as men who serve this church. We are in session. Um, It is called among us the church session and in some other Presbyterian denominations, the consistory. Both expressions import a body of ecclesiastical men sitting and acting together as the representatives and for the benefit of the church. This body of elders with the pastor at their head and presiding at their meetings form a judicial assembly by which... All the spiritual interests of the congregation are to be watched over, regulated, and authoritatively determined. Further, our book of church order tells us, The church session is charged with maintaining the spiritual government of the church, for which the purpose it has power, to inquire into the knowledge, principles, and Christian conduct of the church, members under its care, to censure those who found delinquent, to see that parents do not neglect to present their children for baptism, to receive members into the communion of the church, to remove them for just cause, to grant letters of dismissal to other churches, which when given to parents shall always include the names of the non communing baptized children. Among other things, the role of the session is to oversee everything that occurs and operates in this, in this church. There ought not to be one single thing that happens here that that the church session is not intimately involved with. Um, There's more to say about that, but I'll move on. Miller says, It belongs to the church session to bind and loose, to admit to the communion of the church with all its privileges, to take cognizance, All departure from the purity of faith or practice to try to uh, censure, acquit, or excommunicate those who are charged with offenses. To consult and determine upon all matters relating to the time, place, and circumstance of worship and other spiritual concerns. To take order about catechizing children, congregational fasts or Thanksgiving days, and all other observances stated or occasional to correct as far as possible, everything that may tend to disorder or is contrary to edification and to digest and execute plans for promoting a spirit of inquiry, of reading, of prayer, of order, and of universal holiness among the members of the church. And as the members of the church session, whether assembled in their judicial capacity or not, are the pastor's counselor and colleagues in all matters relating to the spiritual rule of the church so it is their official duty to encourage sustain and defend him in faithful discharge of his duty it is deplorable when a minister is assailed for his fidelity by the profane or worldly if for any portion of the eldership either takes part against him or shrinks from his active and determined defense. It is not meant, of course, that they are to consider themselves bound to sustain him in everything he may say or do, whether right or wrong. But when they really believe him to be faithful, both to truth and duty, they should feel it is their duty to stand by him, to shield him from the arrows of the wicked, and to encourage him as far as he obeys Christ. I don't see Tim in here but I made a point to um say I love him and that is my aim to um to defend him you know um to encourage him I think uh <laughs> it's it's a it's a real delight a real pleasure um being in this um being on the session, you know, I, I feel like um, I just inherited uh, a lot of new friends, um, a lot of men that that I can go to and count on. And, and that's critical because if we're going to minister to you, we need that same support. Um, role in church discipline. <coughs> but we may say that the business of the ecclesiastical discipline that is the strange work even of the pious and faithful it is in his own nature an unacceptable and unwelcome employment to take cognizance of the delinquencies in faith or practice to admonish offenders to call them when necessary before the proper tribunal to seek out And array proof with fidelity to drag insidious error and artful wickedness from their hiding places and to suspend or excommunicate from the privileges of the church when honor of religion and the best interests of the body of Christ call for these measures is painful work to every benevolent mind. It is the work in which no man is willing to engage unless constrained by a sense of duty. Again, as I preface this message, again, a lot of this is theoretical and aspirational. It is my, uh, my uh, <laughs> desire to be able to um, execute these tasks in the event necessary, um, doing them alongside the men I serve with um, to do it soundly and appropriately and orderly. It is no doubt true that the very suggestion or of the necessity and important importance of discipline in the church is odious to many who bear the Christian name. The worldly and careless portion of every church consider the interposition of ecclesiastical inspection and authority in reference to the lives and conversation of its members. As officious and offensive, meddling with private concerns, they would much rather retain their external standing as professors of religion and at the same time pursue their unhallowed pleasures without control. They never wish to see a minister as such except in the pulpit or in any church officer in another place in the seat in the sanctuary. To such persons, the entire absence of the class of officer for which we are pleading, together with the exercise of all their appropriate functions, would be a matter of felicitation rather than regret. Again, as I mentioned and, and, and allude to in my own experience, a lot of churches don't have a, a frame of reference. They, they don't know what discipline is and what it entails. Um, I would say anybody who's not a member here and who comes here on a regular basis, become a member. Jim, talking to you. Church membership is an invitation from the member to the session to be involved in one another's life. When we take vows, we invite the session into our life. And there's benefits. The book of church order says in 6.3 All baptized persons are entitled to the watchful care instruction and government of the church Even though they are adults and have made no profession of faith are in Christ 6.4 says those only who have made a profession of faith in Christ have been baptized And admitted to the session to the Lord's table are entitled to the rights and privileges of the church That is This is saying that to be a member of a church and be under the care and the governance of thereof is a benefit. And if you aren't one, you're, you're missing out. We all took vows when we became members. And one of which you, you might recall, do you submit yourself to the government and discipline of the church and promise to study its purity and peace? But I need not to say to those who take their views of the Christian church and its real prosperity from the Bible and from the best experience that enlightened and faithful discipline is not only important but absolutely essential to the purity and edification of the body of Christ. It ought to be regarded as one of the most precious means of grace by which offenders are humbled, softened, and brought to repentance. Their church purged of unworthy members, offenses removed, the honor of Christ promoted, real Christians stimulated and improved in their spiritual course, faithful testimony borne against error and crime, and the professing family of Christ made to appear holy and beautiful in the view of the world. Without wholesome discipline for removing offenses and excluding the corrupt and profane, there may be an assembly, but there cannot a church. The truth is the exercise of a faithful watch and care over the purity of each other in doctrine, worship, and in life is one of the principal purposes for which the Christian church was established, and on account of which it is highly prized by every enlightened believer. And I have no doubt in my, it may be safely affirmed that a large part of all that is holy in the church at the present day, either in faith or practice, may be ascribed under God as much a sound ecclesiastical discipline as to the faithful preaching of the gospel. Miller also says, Now all serious and impartial readers of the Bible believe that besides the preaching of the gospel and the administration of the sacraments, there is very much to be done with promoting order, purity, edification of the church by the maintenance of scriptural discipline they believe that the best interests of every ecclesiastical community requires that there be a constant and faithful inspection of all the members and families of the church that the negligent be admonished that the wanderers be reclaimed that scandals be removed that irregularities be corrected, that differences be reconciled, and every proper measure adopted to bind the whole body together by the ties of Christian purity. By this plan of employing a judicial class of ruling elders in each church to assist in counsel and government, in this plan we have provided a body of grave, pious, and prudent men associated with a pastor chosen out of the body of the church members, carrying with them in some measure the feelings and views of their constituents. They, capable of counseling the pastor in all delicate and doubtful cases, counteracting any undue influence or course of measure into which his partiality, prejudice, or lack of information may betray him, exonerating him at once from the odium and temptation of having all the power in his own hands. Man, I didn't get through very much. Um, the book of church also tells us that being members of the church are subject to its discipline and entitled to the benefits thereof. That is, you know, when we think of discipline, we, we it's a negative and, it, and it's and it's not if we are a set apart people if we are holy if we are called out and it is our desire to honor christ we welcome it you you are the benefactor of of a people who are are who are called to care for your soul and um it says it's for members The power of which Christ has given the church is for building up and not for destruction. It is to be exercised as under a dispensation of mercy and not of wrath. As in the preaching of the word, the wicked are doctrinally separated from the good. So by by this it acts the part of a tender mother, correcting her children for their good, that every one of them may be presented faultless in the day of the Lord. Discipline is systematic training under the authority of God's Scripture. No communing or non communing member of the church should be allowed to stray from the Scripture's discipline. Therefore, teaching elders must instruct the officers in discipline, instruct the congregation in discipline, jointly practice in the context of the congregation and courts. Ruling elders with close connection to the congregation are well-positioned to address the matters of discipline. Their participation in the church session and decision-making proper, uh, processes ensure a balanced and just application of discipline when needed. As the BCO stated, discipline ought not, to be, ought not to be punitive, but corrective. Ruling elders are to exercise discipline with a spirit of love and restoration. Seeking the well-being of the individual and the health of the entire church body. This duty is an expression of the ruling elders pastoral concern for the spiritual vitality of the congregation. Upholding doctrinal standards. Preserving sound doctrine is of paramount importance and concern for the ruling elder ruling elders working alongside teaching elders play a critical role in upholding the doctrinal standards of the church. This collaborative effort ensures that the congregation remains steadfast in its adherence to the biblical truths and theological principles that they teach. So how do we do that? We're going to witness an ordination today, and you guys are all witnesses to one that just occurred. I took a vow that says the following. I was asked, do you believe in the scriptures of the Old and New Testament as originally given to be the inerrant word of God, the only infallible rule of faith and practice? Number two, do you sincerely receive and adopt the confession of faith in the catechisms of the church as containing the system of doctrine taught in the Holy Scriptures? And do you further promise that if at any time you find yourself out of accord with any of the fundamentals of the system doctrine, you will on your own initiative, make known to your session, the change of which has taken place in your views since the assumption of your, of this ordination vow. So what I'm getting at is I made a promise to you, to these people, to the men I serve alongside to, to uphold confessional fidelity biblical fidelity and um what i would do is i would encourage you and your families to 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 read your confessions to to go through the catechisms that is how we guard our these are our standards they serve the church to weed off and, and 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 defend us from error Book of Church Order 8.3 says it belongs to those in the office of elder both severely and jointly to watch diligently over the flock committed to his charge that no corruption of doctrine or morals enter therein. They must exercise government and discipline and take oversight not only of the spiritual interests of the particular church but also the church generally when called thereunto. They should visit the people at their homes, especially the sick. They should instruct the ignorant comfort the mourner nourish and guard the children of the church they should set a worthy example to the flock entrusted to their care by their zeal to evangelize the unconverted make disciples and demonstrate hospitality we encourage the people to study and use the confessions and catechisms of our church to benefit and edification for themselves and their children That is, as an elder and shepherd, we are to be diligent in making it our business to know what's going on in the church. We are to be on guard of any error that requires correction and be willing and able to address issues with earnest and urgency, yet in a spirit of wisdom, prudence, and in concert with fellow members of the session. Preserving and promoting sound doctrine is a crucial aspect of the ruling elders' duty. In collaboration with the teaching elders, ruling elders are responsible for upholding the doctrinal doctrinal standards of the church. This duty involves a commitment to biblical truth and the defense of the essential doctrines that define the identity and beliefs of the Presbyterian church. Lastly, representatives of the congregation The ruling elders' role as representative of the congregation, elected and from the local congregation, provide a vital link between the people and the church leadership. This representation is crucial for maintaining a a connection between the leadership and the diverse needs and perspectives of the congregation. Again, I'll remind you, um, I was nominated, and... and, uh, And a couple of you guys, I I said, thanks, but no thanks. And um, I took some persuading um, because at the end of the day, I was encouraged and and, and it's my aim to, to serve you. I was nominated, trained, examined, elected, and installed to represent, oversee, and shepherd the people of this particular church. The ruling elders' role is not merely administrative, it is deeply relational. Ruling elders are to understand and reflect the needs, concerns, and aspirations of the congregation and the decision-making process of the church. This ris- representative function contributes to a more responsive and accountable leadership. Ruling elders are not isolated from the experience of the congregation. Rather, they are to be intimately connected to the life of the church and community. Though this representation, the ruling elder's office is a means of fostering unity and understanding within the body of believers. Miller, as he closes the chapter uh, on the duties and um, responsibilities of the uh, ruling elder, says if he had the attention Of every Presbyterian church member, he would say the following, and I'll close with this. Every consideration which has been urged to show the importance and duties belonging to the office of ruling elders ought to remind you of the important duties which you owe to them. Remember at all times that they are your ecclesiastical rulers, rulers of your own choice, yet by no means coming to you by virtue of mere human authority but in the but in name and by the appointment of the great head of the church and of course the ministers of God for you so that is the ruling elder and it is um my desire to uh to serve you as such um That's it, guys. So I didn't prepare for any questions, but um, I think we got a couple minutes, if anybody has anything. Okay, Um,
1: several comments. One is you you kind of hint on the superiority of Presbyterian polity over Episcopalian, and yet I think you can make a very strong argument for a uh, Episcopalian polity. Uh, I don't agree with it, but I think that it does exist. And uh, I've heard some very prominent uh, Anglicans like J.I. Packer uh, make substantive arguments how uh, a good person on the top can really stave off heresy uh, below. but. Uh the second comment I would read from Martin Luther if I profess with loudest voice and clearest exposition every portion of the truth of God except that little point which the world and the devil are at that moment attacking I am not confessing Christ and he goes on where the battle rages there the loyalty of the soldier must be proved why do I read that now I think that if we look at the PCA as a denomination uh there are some issues that are uh, becoming very hot topics and in general assembly even tearing the denomination apart including issues such as theistic evolution uh gender confusion critical race theory uh transcendental worship so on and so forth and uh if you look at general assembly uh you can see that there is a poli- polarity between academics and the uh ruling elder on the street and it, it has been the salvation of conservatism in the pca that there are ruling elders that have uh gone and stood up so While you talk about doctrinal integrity within the congregation, um, I think there is a vital aspect of taking the real battle, as Luther said, where it's raging, to the General Assembly, and uh, the necessity of ruling elders standing up against those issues that are literally ripping our denomination apart. Thank, thank you
0: for those comments. Yeah, you, you, you know, I'm, I'm a, you know, a fairly new Presbyterian. However, um, uh, I, I have made it my business to to tr- to try and be informed with regard to to the to um, our denominations' um, current struggles. And and I think I'm I'm sort of encouraged, and at least in more recent um, GA. Um you, you have initiatives you know with more you know there's this uh, attempt to get more ruling elders involved and and get them there and um be involved um there's lots of resources uh, you know there's there, there's been some recent amendments to the bco that 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 are getting us into um, a direction that addresses some of this moral confusion that that is around um however you know i think with with a lot of the men that that serve our denomination i I think that if we really really stand on our standards they are adequate and sufficient in in answering and and um you know uh addressing the, the 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 trials of our day however we we as a people have to be um willing and able to to combat that as it comes up and uh again um i have lots to learn you know so um you know i'll 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 say what i say with regard to what i am able to uh speak on um because as i mentioned as i started i've got one whole session meeting under my belt however it is my intention to to serve this church this these people in particular and 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 we are a connectional denomination we 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 have presbyterian ga we we are um we are people that that um want to um uphold biblical fidelity and and i think that is one thing you could say however there are issues i'm not gonna (coughs) deny that you got oh i thought he was raising his hand uh gentlemen right here What was your name again, brother? Antonio. Antonio. Uh, Just a a quick question. I'm happy to talk further offline if it's more appropriate, but is there a, a clear scripture you would point to that delineates the distinction between the pastor teaching elder and ruling elder? Well, I think chapter three um well I I think what I gathered from your inquiry was how do you get ruling versus teaching um and I think it's it's probably more a derived um developmental uh of sorts because what we do have clearly expressed is the teaching there's teaching that's happening um, when, when the gospels preach, however, what you have, and this is again why I think it might be helpful at a future time to, to argue for the office and, and, and how the New Testament church adopted the, the, the system that was already in place. These Jewish believers were members of the synagogue. They had a teaching ministry and an elder ran institution it it was already there so again as i said it's it's normative and presupposed that this is how the church functioned you had those who labored in word and doctrine and then you know again as a matter of how do you execute the care for the church they told these men to go and appoint elders you know and and likewise we we have our diaconate you know that was that was uh by the, the wisdom of God, a, 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 an office that was needed to meet a need and it was developmental. So again, I think, you know, like I said, at a future time, I, I do would, I, I do look forward to kind of unpacking that further because it is interesting and, and if we're going to have convictions on it, we ought to be able to talk about it. Well I think I'll close with some prayer, um, we've got a very special event coming up today Lord, I want to thank you, God, for this time and setting it apart, Lord. I beg you, God, to have mercy on us, Lord, and, and, and prepare our hearts for, for worship today. We ask you, God, to be with our pastors, Lord, to, to minister to us, Lord. And we pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.